0: Forget. Come with us and don't no, no, come, the movie, you Hello and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, nibbling on a scone in
1: Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, munching on a South Melbourne dim sum in (laughs) Melbourne, Australia.
0: We focus on sci-fi, horror and fantasy because Dan and I love investigating derelict spacecraft, strange noises in the middle of the night and unicorns in wooded glades. Mmm,
1: love me some unicorns. (laughs) always. How are you today, Dan? I'm very well, very well. It's a good time to record at 1am in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I am really sorry about
0: the time slot this time. (laughs) We have a special guest today and she is in New York. So yes, interesting in terms of scheduling. Mm, It is very interesting. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm sure you will get your revenge when we get a New
1: Zealand uh, actor or director on. Ah, fingers crossed. <laughs> so anything in the, in the mailbag today, Conrad?
0: Well, we've been having some lovely comments on our YouTube channel. In case you don't know, I animate little excerpts from the podcast. So it's, they're well worth having a look if you haven't followed us on YouTube. And uh, we had a comment from Michael Pilola. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but he just wanted to say that I can't get your opening theme out of my head and I've been belting it out as loud as I can at random times, much to the chagrin of my wife and kids. (laughs) That's
1: what we're hoping for.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what we were shooting for right from the beginning. Earworm that irritates everybody else in the house. Mm.
1: I don't have anything uh, in the mailbag, but I do want to mention that uh, I think two episodes ago uh, when I was trying to desperately find H20, uh, I also found another movie on my journey, um, Dead Calm. Which I have here, uh, which is in the Oubliette We might visit later on. Mm. And I also found this show, which is called The Dead Set, which uh, we won't cover because it's a TV show. But it's uh, it's by the creator of Black Mirror, so um, Charlie Brooker.
0: <laughs> yes, it's a, a zombie apocalypse in the Big Brother house. If you've ever watched Big Brother,
1: <laughs> that sounds right up my alley. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, if anybody in the UK is interested in watching it, I believe
1: it's. Been added to Netflix. Ah. (laughs) Any more comments uh, or feedback? Uh,
0: Well, just uh, as usual, we always get lovely comments from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures.
1: Mm, Hey, Surge. Hey, Surge.
0: Yeah, on our Halloween episode on YouTube, he said, I want your jump scare stinger as my ringtone.
1: (laughs) It's so great. I think it would get old pretty quick. (laughs) Just love those jump scares in H20
0: Yes indeed we do So hopefully you can get to the Oubliette Without a jump scare today To uh, pull out a film for us to discuss Mm,
1: Okay Just one moment Mm. Alright I'm over by the Oubliette Ah. Mm. Wow Some sort of formal event down here
0: It's black tie
1: Mm. Okay Okay, I'm back, and the movie today that we will be taking a look at is from 2011, and it's called Melancholia. It's a drama sci-fi directed and written by Lars von Trier, who is, is he Danish? He is. (laughs) Danish director. (laughs) So, uh, and it's starring Kirsten Dunst, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Alexander Skarsgård. Stellan Skarsgård, um, his father, yes, John Hurt, and Kiefer Sutherland, Udo Kier, and Charlotte Rampling. Mm-hmm.
0: This is a very different film for us. This is quite a, a, a serious film, I would say.
1: Yes, it's a very high art, uh, some might might say pretentious film. Uh, so, Melancholia centres around two sisters, Justine and Claire. Justine suffering from crippling depression uh, split into two acts. The first follows Justine at her wedding, trying to hold it together whilst mentally falling apart and in doing so exposing the cracks in her family as they deal with her torment. The second act follows Claire, Justine's sister, dealing with the aftermath of the failed wedding, taking care of her sister, but also having to come to grips with a planet... Colliding with Earth And thus causing The end of the world Wow So essentially The movie covers Depression Loneliness And isolation And The Earth's existence As we know it Just a jolly rock really
0: (laughs) Brace yourself For what is probably Going to be our most Serious discussion ever Mm, Lots to talk about Yes A lot to talk about And Excitingly, we have a special guest to discuss this movie with. In fact, a special guest who chose this movie to mm. discuss. So, yes, can't wait to introduce her and, and start chatting. Be right back. Welcome back and we have a very special guest joining us today. A wonderful actor whose more than 50 credits include everything from hit TV series such as Days of Our Lives, The Outer Limits and White Collar, films such as Weekend at Bernie's and even most recently voice work on the blockbusting AAA game Red Dead Redemption 2. But she's probably best loved among fans of our favourite genres for her roles as the oozy-toting apocalypse survivor Reggie in Night of the Comet and the girl from the trailer next door, Maggie, in The Last Starfighter. I'm very excited to welcome to movie oubliette, Catherine Mary Stewart. Hooray!
2: I'm so happy to be here. I feel like I'm spreading myself all over the world. I love it.
0: <laughs> well, it's very exciting to have you here because both The Last Starfighter and Night of the Comet are personal favorites and um, sci-fi cult classics that we're hoping to cover at some point in the future. So.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Very good. And you know that both of them are um, either being uh, remade or a sequel is being done to them. Really? Theoretically. That's in the news these days, yeah. Um, mm. The last starfighter is uh, Jonathan Betuel who wrote the original script, has finally gotten the rights to it. There was um, a big challenge over that for a long, long time. And so he is now trying to do a sequel, I believe, and I'm hoping. And I've got my fingers crossed because Lance Guest and I would love to participate in that.
0: Yeah, excited to see what might have happened to yourself and Lance after you jetted off to the stars together oh, at the end of The Last Starfighter.
2: <laughs> I'm thinking we've got some uh, offspring happening somewhere. <laughs> So we'll see what happens with that. With any luck, (laughs) (laughs) if we're healthy young man and woman, we should, by now.
0: (laughs) Definitely, yeah. No beta units either.
2: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We'll keep beta units at bay. And uh, also, um, Night of the Comet is being remade, I think, by a a writer named Roxanne Benjamin. Mm. I have to say, not as excited with a remake because it's kind of hard to, you know, duplicate that. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. (laughs) To translate into today, but we'll see what happens. Uh, sadly, there's some talk of taking the humor out of it, and making it more of a, oh. you know, apocalyptic kind of a thing, which I think really makes it unique. But we'll see what happens. It's all very curious. Mm. Mm.
0: Exciting. So, speaking of apocalypses, oh. <laughs> the film that you have chosen for us to talk about today is Lars von Trier's epic apocalyptic science fiction drama, Melancholia. And I was wondering if you could kick things off for us by explaining why you picked it.
2: God knows. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I I remember the very first time I saw this movie, I was just completely confused through the whole thing because there didn't seem to be any sort of story arc or anything that was particularly linear about it. It Mm. starts off with eight minutes of, you know, these visuals that are ultra slow motion that are just sort of show the apocalypse. It was insane. And I'm like, what the heck is this movie about? And then you jump, you know, to this um, wedding scene that seems at first to be very fun and light and blah, 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 carries on from there. But what I remembered the most when I first saw the movie after all this other stuff is going on, was the very end. And as it turns out, I'm really fascinated by this sort of of end-of-the-world apocalyptic theme in movies. And I find myself disappointed in most movies. You know, so many of them portray this absolute, Chaos on Earth, and everybody has to drink as much as they can, or have as much sex as they can, because it's going to be the end of the Earth, and so everybody goes crazy. And it never—I was like, oh, "This is just an excuse to be hedonistic." I don't know, mm. <laughs> and it didn't never satisfied me. But when I saw the end of this, the the visual of the building, the TP. Mm. climbing into it and the three characters holding hands as the earth literally impacts this other planet. I was just blown away by that. I, I don't know what it was. I guess I'm just that kind of dark person <laughs> under this under this sort of frivolous exterior. <laughs> I don't know. I, I it just blew me away sort of uh, metaphorically and physically and psychologically. <laughs> It's, it's just wild. And the more I watch it, the more I like it. So that's my intro. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strong intro because this film is very
1: difficult to describe.
0: Dan, you'd seen this movie before, hadn't you? I hadn't.
1: Mm. Yes, I've seen it a few times, yes. Cool.
2: Do you like it?
1: Yes. No, I really I do really love it. Um, Lars von Trier, I know why people hate him as a director and his films are quite... Self-absorbed, they're very bleak, they're very miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this one is counted as the second of his depression trilogy. That's right. Antichrist being the first one, which is very bleak <laughs> <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, and I think this film especially it does touch on depression. Literally with Justine's character being depressed during her wedding and just unable to function as a human being. And then in the second act, when we follow Claire, the depression is kind of personified as a planet melancholia, (laughs) even called melancholy. (laughs) Um, And that depression, it's almost like the depression is this planet hurtling towards earth and Claire is reacting in the same way that Justine did with her depression but with the planet and just being unable to cope and being frantically trying to do stuff but not really being able to get away. The whole bridge being a symbolism of trying to get away from the depression but not able to cross over um, and to go on to other things and in the end with Justine having dealt with her depression and the planet almost felt like she accepted her fate and accepted the planet uh-huh. um, destroying the earth, whereas uh, Claire was still <laughs> not accepting it, and yeah. and and even in the end she was crying and could not get to grips, whereas uh, Justine was calm and yeah just let it happen
2: well, yeah,
1: so I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in there there's a lot of, a lot of depth,
2: yeah it, it's almost like the reversal of character, you know, I think Charlotte Gainsborough was saying that she felt like her, she and Kirsten Dunst's character were really two sides of one person, mm-hmm. but you know, Claire reacts to this apocalypse basically in. The way a normal human being would. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to watch how Kirsten Dunst or or Justine, all of a sudden, her life is in control. And apparently, with people that are, you know, very, very depressed, when there is some sort of a situation that is catastrophic as this, they calm down. It's like Mm -hmm. they're, because in their everyday life, they feel, they already know that life is a catastrophe, that's why, that's why they're depressed. And maybe this is a way she looks at it as, see, see what happens. So you open with this eight-minute visual sequence, which I loved. I just thought it was so beautiful and eerie. And and I mean, it's so tangible. You just feel it through your body. This eight minutes of ultra-slow motion visuals of you know, from um, the close-up of Kirsten Dunst in, in the depth of her depression to birds falling behind her to, mm. to... It sort of takes you through the whole journey of the movie in the beginning until that last shot of the earth just sinking into this planet melancholia. And I guess um, Lars von Trier wanted to just kind of get it out of the way so that you could, you knew what was going to happen. It wasn't going to be some mystery. Are they going to live? Are they going to die? No, they're going to die. That's what's going to happen here. And so you can really sort of pay attention to the rest of the movie, which is interesting.
0: Hmm. Yes. As you say, you get this eight minutes of astonishing slow motion photography Uh that sort of combines a premonition of what is to come, both literally and figuratively. You even see some of the uh, metaphors. So Uh although Claire does run across the golf course outside their lovely stately home um, holding her son trying to escape from the the oncoming oh. apocalypse. she's not sinking into the ground as she does in the opening mm-hmm. uh, montage so there are sort of figurative metaphorical images for what's to come as well as actual premonitions of what is to come and then you shift straight into part one because it's there's two parts there's one that's called Justine. There's one that's called Claire and the Justine focuses on the wedding. And what amazes me about the whole wedding sequence is this stark contrast between this earth shattering horror that you know is on the horizon and the empty, futile ceremony of a wedding Mm -hmm. reception not just a wedding but just the reception where it's just this this very gaudy display of wealth and greed and affluence Mm -hmm. Mm.
2: it it really throws you off because it goes from this happy wedding day and it appears to be perfectly happy as as they're trying to drive to the reception at um, Claire's house uh, um, Justine's sister Um, and they can't get there and they're late and and they're already in trouble and you just see her psyche is just slowly being chipped away <laughs> um, and she's you realize, oh, this is not a healthy person on her the happiest day of her life that that we thought she was. Um, and then all these crazy characters enter into the story as well, which just kind of um, adds to her pain, really, because nobody is willing to acknowledge her at all Mm -hmm. you you know there's all these scenes where she's please talk to me I just need to sit I just need to take a nap I just need to do this and she's not living up to what her the expectation is of a of a newlywed and Mm. so yeah she just she just sinks deeper and deeper and deeper into this depression.
0: Yes and very much that Justine is expected to perform a very specific role and be happy Mm -hmm. while And yet you have all these characters around her that are behaving really in quite appalling ways. And the thing that that fascinates me about this, I I mean, I found the whole wedding sequence, uh, sequence is an hour long, but I found (laughs) the whole wedding part of the movie almost like a very satirical farce with all of these characters surrounding her who were more emblematic. They seem to sort of represent a particular viewpoint rather than being fully rounded characters. So you have Kiefer Sutherland as Claire's husband, who's just reminding Justine all the time how much this thing cost, and she better be happy because this thing was expensive. Mm -hmm. And you have... Uh, Stellan Skarsgård as Justine's boss, who seems to have only turned up and hijacks his best man speech to try to remind her that she actually has a deadline and he's expecting her to do some work before the end of the night and has even hired his nephew to follow her around um, to get this tagline for an ad mm-hmm. from her mm-hmm. and uh, and threatens to fire him if he doesn't get it. So his, his whole future career and, and prosperity hangs in the balance.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: you have Justine's mother, who seems to have showed up just to decry weddings in general. Think, how <laughs> awful,
2: <just> Antagonise everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah, because uh, Justine's parents are no longer married. And you've got John Hurt as her father, who seems to be barely even aware of her as an individual. He even mistakenly calls her Betty after he finds himself seated between two mm. Bettys and becomes permanently confused by it for the rest of the evening.
2: <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was a joke. I took that as a joke.
0: I think it is, definitely, yeah. And yeah. It, it just seems to me that she's surrounded by people that are behaving in ways that certainly I would not expect anyone to behave at a wedding. Mm -hmm. They all seem to have these other agendas. It's a very fraught wedding on the whole.
2: On the whole it is. But consider, though, that these characters probably do exist in every wedding. But it's not slowed down to this pace and or focused on those specific characters. I, I would wager a guess that these people, even if they're not vocal about it, they think this way because it is, it's such a strange, archaic ceremony that, you know, I mean, ultimately, what does it mean? And I think that's part of the story that uh, Von Trier is trying to tell too. It's just like the frivolity or the hedonism or whatever you want to call it of life, especially in our Western civilization. It's just like, what's the point? And then we die. (laughs) You know, <laughs> And in this case, he chooses to die in just this horribly catastrophic way. Mm. I guess maybe that's also something that really draws me to melancholia specifically. But his mind, um, it works in such a very unusual, specific way and really does draw your attention to things that we try to avoid, actually, I think. In the real world, we try to make sure that life is good and everything's great and to the point where we're blind to seeing, you know, somebody like uh, Justine who is just suffering. No, I'm sorry. You promised you wouldn't suffer today, which is literally said to her, I can't believe you're ruining the party. And she just sinks deeper and deeper into this. Uh, depression, which most people have the wherewithal to rise above, I guess. Lars von Trier uh, says that he was he was sort of exploring his own um, psyche. He's suffered depression himself, and and he sort of wrote this character around his own depression, basically. So it's it's fascinating, really.
1: Yeah, hmm. I think as well. The, the film, another theme of the film is uh, control. Uh-huh. So, through the first act, Justine is losing control. Her depression is completely overcoming her. And all of these characters, all of her family uh, and relatives are trying to control her. They're trying to make her to be this ideal mm-hmm. wife, but uh-huh. she's refusing to do that because she is so overcome by her d- depression. And then the second act, because of this planet hurtling towards Earth, John and Claire can't handle it because there's, they don't have any control. So John commits suicide and then Claire tries to get away and she's just hysterical. And it's that sense of not being in control or having other forces trying to. To control you, and yeah, it's a really interesting look at characters, and also just the idea of of depression being an uncontrollable force that just pushes you down into this hole that you can't get out of. Yeah,
2: Mm.
0: yeah, and I think that the way that the the film depicts depression is probably one of the most impressive visualizations and dramatizations of it that I can think of. Mm -hmm. Because this idea that you find it very difficult to enjoy anything, even, you know, she's in the middle of the most ostentatious and and luxurious wedding that you can imagine. The groom is certainly a fine looking man who seems to be very caring and attentive and concerned about her future and her well-being. And it's Alexander Skarsgård. I mean, you're not going to say no, are you? <laughs> um, and you would think that, you know, from a lot of people's perspective, this this should be a happy occasion mm. for her, even if it's fraught with the collision of various competing powers in her family, mm-hmm. as these things always are. But she cannot enjoy it. She's incapable of enjoying it. And I think representing that as this planet on the horizon that is going to destroy the entire world... This looming presence that always weighs down people that are suffering with depression—that I cannot engage with this this event because because of this thing mm-hmm. that is just dragging me down all the time—and mm-hmm. I think the immensity of it mm-hmm. really gets across depression in probably the most um, poignant way that that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: one critique that a lot of people say about Lars von Trier's movies is they are quite misogynistic. So a lot of the time in his movies, the female characters are quite crazy. They're unhinged. They're a bit irrational and the men are very logical and domineering. And I think there were, there were some parallels in this movie with the Seven Sins as well, a lot of biblical references, and the wedding being, yeah, like you said, Catherine, a very hedonistic, just a status event and a, a formality, but Justine was didn't want this. She wanted someone to talk to her on her level, but all the men were either objectifying her, or they were saying to her, you know your place, you know, this is what you should be, or... They were treating her like a goddess, like her husband and saying, this is what you want. This is your, the apple orchard that you wanted. And mm-hmm. I, it is it is interesting critique to, to make.
2: I To me, it sort of shines a very negative light on the misogyny. This is what so many men are like, it's, you know, as opposed to a movie that is misogynistic just because... Guys are powerful and smarter than women and stronger than women. This shows their flaws, mm-hmm. misogynistic flaws, you know. From the the husband that treats uh, his wife as a pet, the boss who treats her like a, just a an object, you know, to get things done.
0: Mm, Yeah, and the brother-in-law, of course, John, who just keeps reminding her how much all of this is costing. Mm. But one thing that struck me when I was watching the film is just how, for a filmmaker who is often critiqued for creating films with a, a misogynist outlook, how ineffectual all of the male characters are. You have the groom who... Gives a very underwhelming speech (laughs) and then, I mean, he seems earnestly interested in taking care of Justine, but he he kind of gives up after she doesn't consummate the marriage because she just wants him to connect with her emotionally Mm -hmm. and comfort her. And and then after she goes off and takes advantage of Tim in a sand trap, he just sort of disappears and gives up. And you have her boss, Jack, who after being told that he's a despicable, power-hungry little man by Justine, tries to break a plate in anger, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't even manage to do that. He has to go and apologetically collect it and (laughs) and try again. (laughs) And he
2: smashes it again. All he wanted to do was break that fucking plate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and and even John, the brother-in-law who gets so angry with Gabby being so uh, rude all the time and says, that's it, I'm going to throw out the mother-in-law, that sort of misplaced anger because he's actually angry with Justine for taking a bath and sort of holding everything up. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. it's so ineffectual because even then when he says he's going to throw out the mother-in-law, all he does is take her luggage and throw it outside the front door, at which point the butler just comes out and, and calmly collects it all and takes it back in again. So all these... Examples of ineffectual male attempts at control uh, over and over again.
2: Yeah, it just goes on and on, but not in a very positive way at all. And I, I find that interesting, too. I find that the female characters ultimately are absolutely the strongest characters, which uh, and the the most um, injured character in the whole thing, which is, of course, uh, Kirsten Dunst's character, Justine, the, is... Ultimately, the strongest character in the end, which is such an interesting mm. exploration, you know, yeah. how she is completely under control. Yeah.
0: Yes, I, I was wondering as I was watching this, just in the back of my mind thinking, Catherine Mary Stewart loves this movie. And I was watching <laughs> and think because... In terms of the roles that you play and how you are in, in interviews and in discussions, uh, it's it's quite a surprise to see such a dark movie. Uh, I like
2: to keep you guys on your toes. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I was just wondering as I was watching, so we have two halves of the same woman or two very different women, two very interesting sisters. One who is failing to cope with a futile social event, a social construct mm-hmm. and has to be nursemated through it by her sister and then in the flip side the other one who is failing to get to grips with the end of the world and our ultimate demise mm-hmm. that's coming to all of us and she is nursemed through it, although a little harshly it has to be said by Justine. And I was watching it and thinking which one of these representations of womanhood does Catherine relate to the most? <laughs> that's what I was that's my question for you. <laughs> What?
2: <laughs> Which one's better? <laughs> i um, You know, I think I'm a mixture of both of those for sure. I mean, I'm, I have not suffered depression. I've been around people who have, so I'm familiar with it. But when I get into a situation where there's a lot of pressure or a lot at stake, I get very focused and my mind goes into survival mode. For sure, I don't get emotional. I don't start freaking out. I mean, however, having said that, if I knew that I was about to implode into another planet, I don't know, I might be a little nervous. (laughs) So on that level, in that particular scene, I could definitely relate to Claire. But in less apocalyptic situations, let's say, (laughs) I do sort of hunker down and get very focused and protective and sort of become the mama lion sort of thing. I remember I lived in California for 12 years, and when I was first married, our, we had a we had, our baby was maybe a year old, probably less than a year old, and there was the big 1994 earthquake there, and it the whole middle of the night, the whole house just started shaking, and things were falling off the walls, and and my husband who didn't think much of California in the first place, he became paralyzed. He was just like, he didn't know what to do. He freaked out. I got up, I ran to my daughter's bedroom. I found her. She was fine. Um, you know, picked her, picked her up and got into our car to sit outside. So in case the the house collapsed on us, but it didn't scare me. I didn't feel scared. I just felt, okay, what do I have to do to protect mm. my family?
0: Ooh. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing between... The two characters is, of course, that when it comes to the apocalypse, you could kind of say that Justine has less to lose. Claire has a child. Mm. And that's a very different equation, isn't it?
2: It is a very, very different equation. And it's so interesting also at the end where she was saying they were talking about, um, you know, this is the only planet. We're alone in the universe. This is we're the only ones alive. And Claire says, there might be some someplace else, you know. There there might be life. Some there isn't. Well, what? Where? Where am I going to take my son? My son needs to go somewhere else. It's like this um, thing is just coming down on them. I mean, it's there, you know. She's and she's going to, well, I guess, get into a rocket and go off to some other planet. But <laughs> right? that's that's sort of, I think, instinctually what a mother and uh, I'm sure fathers think is like, how are we going to protect our child? Yeah. that is the ultimate challenge
0: you know yeah i mean it's, it's one of the images from the opening that i particularly love is the this sort of triptych where they're stood mm. on the lawn in front of that fantastic castle it's nighttime and you have justine on the left claire on the right and in the middle leo mm-hmm. claire's son and above them in the sky there is a heavenly body, so you have the sun over Claire. You have melancholia, of course, over Justine, and over the the sun, you have the moon. Mm-hmm. There is this sense that he he is the reason that they're able to come together at the end under that um, mm. hastily constructed. What is it—a wigwam or? T- 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 <laughs> yeah, it's sort of
2: like a teepee without the, you know, the covering, or as he, as uh-huh. she called it, the magic cave. Yes. So at that point, it, you know, it was like, <laughs> this will do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they had a lot of time to figure out everything, but yeah. it's too bad they couldn't have been in some. Um, Screening room, like in *Night of the Comet*, mm, <laughs> you know, when yeah. they play the film, protected from everything. <laughs> yes,
0: lead lines to escape those so zombies. So that's
2: right. That's yeah. right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the sound design was actually uh, very subtle, but really, really well done. Uh, I don't know whether you noticed, but in the last scene or a good part of the last section of the movie, uh, they stripped out all the sound Mm -hmm. and you couldn't hear any birds, you Mm. couldn't hear any wind, and it was very intimate and you could only hear um, the sounds of the people and the dialogue and breathing and just very simple Foley. Uh, And I guess that really did represent, I mean, obviously it represented this huge planet coming towards earth and affecting the wildlife and the gravitational, everything, atmosphere. They had trouble breathing. But it also kind of, I felt like it, again, represented depression and how when you are depressed, everything just seems very bland and very uninspiring and nothing sounds rich and full of life. It just sounds dead and dull and also with the color grade as well, everything did look quite gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was very well done.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm. The silence, the lack of noise, it's, it's almost like a black hole almost, you know, in, in, in its sound. It, it, exactly. And uh, building to this massive thing, it's almost, which almost seemed to make Justine calm down. And it made Claire mm. freak out.
1: Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. I, I think about, because we've covered a few kind of uh, Italian giallo uh, type movies, those are always 80 yard and all mm-hmm. foleyed mm-hmm. in post production. So it sounds very awkward and, and mm-hmm. unnerving. Mm-hmm. They almost did exactly the same thing with this film, but with a very effective result mm-hmm. that did make you feel a bit like on edge, like what is going on? Why is mm. this doesn't sound natural mm-hmm. in the end? yeah. Yes.
2: Yeah. I also like that in terms of sound, I, I really love that part where we first see melancholia rise over the lake mm. and all the birds come out. Yes. I love that. that yes. nice <laughs> we had a solar eclipse not too long ago and, um, I was up uh, with my parents up in uh, the west coast of British Columbia. And it, we only got the partial eclipse, but it was pretty full. And as the moon passes in front of the sun, all the wildlife goes silent. Oh. But the opposite was true with this, where melancholia is rising and all the... You hear the birds like it's the first thing in the morning. And of course, it's like midnight or whatever. Mm. That, I loved that. Part of the sound as well. I thought that was that was great. Mm. There's so much in this movie. It's a, it's science fiction in a way, but it's there's so much realism in it as well. Mm. The realism in the depression. The realism in the even. You know, you could argue this is like the worst wedding reception ever, <laughs> but <laughs> but in some senses, it's so incredibly realistic because it's almost like. It's dissected. Mm. All the fun bits have been removed, and we're focusing on kind of the cancer of the the celebration. Mm.
1: It's all very theatrical, and and like you said, Conrad, as well, like a farce. Like it's, mm. it really is this almost unnatural, but still realistic. Um, Event that's taking place, and I I kind of feel it. It's quite quite reflected in the music as well, because the music is taken from oh, an, yeah. an opera, um, Tristan mm. and, and Isolde is by Wagner, and it has that very dramatic operatic kind Ooh. of feel to the whole movie. And it's very lots of striking um symbolism and visuals, and yeah, there are lots of references as well to paintings. So. The, the painting of Ophelia um, mm-hmm. There's that scene at the start Where it shows Justine floating down this river In her wedding mm-hmm. dress And that's like the painting of Ophelia The character of Ophelia who uh, drowns in this river mm-hmm. So I guess the river is, is symbolic of this depression That's just mm-hmm. dragging her down right. um, Yeah, just a lot of, lot of details in the movie That you can really take apart and mm. think about
2: just fascinating. I mean, I, I can't imagine how this man's mind works. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he's definitely one of the most fascinating filmmakers working today. And even people have a very polarised response to, to everything yeah, yeah. Very, that Very, very polarised. Even in something like this, you can't help but get the sense that he may well be making fun of us. Mm-hmm. It looks as though it's deeply serious, but it could all just be a prank. I mean, one thing that I did notice was Justine's mocking of her sister's attempt to make a perfect moment for the end. That she says, mm. oh, let's sit on the the veranda with a glass of wine all together. Will mm. you do that for me, sis? I just want it to be nice. Mm-hmm. And she says to her, well, maybe we could play Beethoven's Ninth, which is <laughs> the ode <laughs> to joy, and just mocks her for it viciously. But at the same time, you mm. think, yes, but hang on, Lars, you're showing us these cosmic images with Wagner over the top of them. So... Are you mocking us at the same time? Because this is the kind of imagery and <laughs> and music that we expect for this this kind of event. So you, you're yeah, right. You almost feel as though it's a prank.
2: Yeah, it, it's you're right. If they had sat on the the veranda with a glass of wine, playing Beethoven, it would have actually fit in just fine with the movie. <laughs> but what was interesting about it? It was like um, Justine chose to make it about the boy. Mm. It wasn't about her at all. And in the end, she she's the hero. I mean, she makes the child feel okay about the end of the world. Mm. And that's incredibly unselfish.
0: Yeah. And I think that it's why he is in the center of that triptych mm. that you see so early on in the film, that mm. he is kind of this balancing figure between these two very different women or these two halves of the same woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. Okay, so it's time for a break and it's just the boys here and we're going to be uh, nominating some of our favourite aspects of the movie in the most frivolous categories imaginable. Mm. Uh, As always, we kick off with favourite quote. Lots of wonderful quotes in this movie. Dan, did you have a particular favourite?
1: Yeah, I mean, I really liked a lot of the quotes that Justine said. She was very very poetic and very romantic. Mm. So it's in the second part, and uh, Justine is talking to Claire, and they're talking about the approaching planet about to hit Earth. And I think Claire is talking about... What are we going to do? How can we avoid this? And then Justine says, uh, the earth is evil. We don't need to grieve for it. Nobody will miss it. And it's just a very, yeah, almost like defeatist, but at the same time, romantic, mm. saying that we're, we're really not that important. Mm. When, when a big planet is hurtling towards the earth, it doesn't really matter. You know, <laughs> what can you do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there's lots of opportunities for big portentous speeches like that in this movie. And mm. particularly because the planet is called melancholia, mm. it means that while they're talking about the planet, they could be meaning something else. Mm-hmm. And my favorite quote is John Who's so enthusiastic, uh, Kiefer Sutherland, about this once in a lifetime opportunity to see the planet nearly being destroyed. And he says, Melancholia is just going to pass right in front of us and it's going to be the most beautiful sight ever. Oh, so, yes. And I just think it's so ironic that he should feel that way about something that, if you take it another way, means terrible soul-crushing depression Mm, very good (laughs) so uh, did you have a favorite scene mine would be the opening montage which is probably an easy
1: pick yeah i mean that yeah obviously very stunning visually Uh, i actually quite liked that final scene with with the fact that it was very gray and very dull and uh, the sound design is very sparse, and then you have that very gentle kind of rumbling sound of the planet approaching, and then it's just this huge wave of noise comes at you, and then the screen just goes white. Mm. Yeah, the most powerful scene, obviously, in the in the film, <laughs> but I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, and it cuts to it the longest period of black screen and silence before the credits begin yes so that you're left you're left in your own little void yeah to contemplate your fate yeah for quite some time Exactly. it's very powerful stuff (laughs) so what was your favorite scene The, the the opening yeah i think it is the opening montage yeah i saw somebody commenting online that it's very much like bringing paintings to life because the paintings always do not capture a freeze frame moment in time, but give a sense of movement. And so you sort of see that movement uh, as a trick of the eye. Uh, Yeah, I just love that. Mm. It's amazing. Oh,
1: I mean, and the respect as well that the movie constantly references other famous paintings as well. So in Mm. itself that the movie is like a painting is, yeah. Incredible. (laughs) Very well done. Very well done.
0: (laughs) Um, in terms of special effects, did you have a favourite effect in this movie?
1: I really liked how they conveyed the the planet. Mm. It was done really well. Like, it didn't look over the top. It just had this kind of ominous background kind of effect and it did look often like a, just like a giant moon. I, I thought they did that really well and didn't look hammy. Mm. Like, I feel like if we watched this in 30 years it would still hold up as a a special effect as a cgi effect so yeah well done on that
0: yeah i mean it's perfect every time it appears i mean my favorite is one of the scenes on the lawn when melancholia is approaching but it's still quite some distance away and so you have the moon and you have melancholia and they're about the same size yes it casts two shadows on all of the those beautiful shaped hedges on the lawn Mm. and it's such an odd image you immediately register that something's wrong yeah and when you watch the making of you actually see how they did it which is just two big cranes two enormous lights oh yes with different gels on right and then it's replaced with computer graphics but that's how they actually set the scene and it's it yeah simple and very effective cool sound effect did you have one of those
1: sound effect i mean the only thing i i loved about the sound was i guess the lack of sound in in the final scene Mm -hmm. and how it's it's very sparse and very empty and and kind of symbolizes the emptiness of depression but also the fact that this planet is enveloping the earth and uh, the wildlife is affected by it and and the weather and the atmosphere and everything so um yeah the lack of sound is my favorite sound
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh for me it was the the birds When you have that spectacular melancholia rise, I suppose you would call it moonrise, melancholia rise. Yes. The fact that the birds start singing. um, Mm. Catherine mentioned this and I, I suddenly thought, yes, this is how it would be. This is really interesting. Yes. And did you have a funniest scene, appropriately or not? Well,
1: I I think Catherine mentioned it. So the scene with Jack, so Justine's boss, when he he throws a plate at the vending wagon, um, and it doesn't smash, and he and he just says, "Oh, I dropped my sorry, I dropped my plate." And he picks it up and smashes it again. I felt like that was a very like improv kind of moment. Like, I'm sure that wasn't expected. No. You expect all crockery and glasses to smash on first impact.
0: Yes, you do. And it reminds me of The Haunting where they drop the bottle and it doesn't break.
1: Yeah. I love that. (laughs) What was your funniest moment?
0: Mine is the limo. I was creased up with that. The whole thing. You go from these awe-inspiring depictions of the end of the world to people trying to get to the wedding reception in ridiculous white stretched limo and being unable to negotiate a twisty country lane. And I thought, there's the movie. It's just so symbolic of the whole movie that Mm. this ridiculous show of wealth and it's not practically able to negotiate
1: nature's landscape. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, yeah. Got it in one. Yeah, but I was wetting myself. I thought it was very funny.
1: I I really like that scene as well because it did show Justine's character just seeing this whole event as just a hilarious waste of time. You know, trying <laughs> yeah. in this limo trying to trying to drive up a, a windy dirt road. When it was the most impractical thing possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's just cracking up in the back seat. <laughs> it is quite a funny movie, I think, considering the
0: weighty themes that it's dealing with. Hmm. I still found it very amusing. Yeah. Um, especially
1: the wedding. Yeah.
0: So that's our Mooblies. Yes. Let's get back to Catherine.
1: <laughs> she's probably just been sitting alone by herself with her thoughts.
0: <laughs> Contemplating the void. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So we are back with the final verdict. Should this film be released to run amok on an 18-hole golf course (laughs) or should it be cast down into a hole and collided with a planet (laughs) and be lost forever? Uh, Catherine, you are our guest today. What did you think?
2: I think it should be allowed to run amok with a 19-hole golf course. (laughs) But I think you need to be uh, aware of what it is you're getting yourself into. It's unusual, and you need to have a very, very open mind. And I would say watch it more than once. Like 13 or 14 times might be sufficient. I'm not sure. (laughs) But I think it's a a fascinating uh, film uh, from a very... uh, unique genre that I would almost call a genre of its own by a very interesting writer and director who is has been always very controversial. And that's what sort of makes it kind of fascinating.
1: Yes. Mm, I do agree. I, I myself gravitate to tragedies. Uh, I love Dramas that end in sad endings (laughs) (laughs) For some reason I I like things falling apart I like watching movies where Marriages fall apart or Mm. families uh, (laughs) uh, have feuds. Um, It's something cathartic about it. I guess it brings back to tragedies from Greece and and, and Mm. Shakespeare. So I I did feel like this was quite a Shakespearean operatic piece of cinema. And yeah, I, I loved all aspects of it. The acting was superb. The, the score and sound design was, was amazing. And, and yes, visually, uh, a feast for the eyes. Yes, I will release it any day.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I think it's unanimous because I agree with both of you. I'd never seen this film before. I had seen Antichrist. And I wasn't all that taken with it, to be honest. (laughs) But this, I think, is... I think if you're going to watch a Lars von Trier movie, I think... This is not a bad place to start. I think this is a, a good entry into his dark and disturbing world because it's a very, it is a very romantic and beautiful exploration of depression. Uh, it's a fascinating character study of these two incredible women who may or may not be the same woman, and. It's deeply moving, but at the same time it fits into that genre of science fiction, the cosmic philosophical mm. exploration of our place in the universe.
1: Existential, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I I'd love that. I'd lap that stuff like stuff like Solaris and, and and so on. So mm. I think it's visually stunning. It's beautifully performed. It's And as you say, even though it's two hours and 15 minutes long, I couldn't get enough of it. I watched it twice in very quick succession in preparation for this discussion. And I still want to go back because I keep thinking about it. Mm. So,
2: <laughs> mm. And there's so much more to discover every time you, you watch it. There's yeah. so many little details that come out that are hugely effective on the story, that, but you could miss them, uh, you know, the first or second time you watch it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I agree with you, Dan. I love kind of intimate, personal, psychological explorations of, of people. I, I seem to really, I love this kind of exploration. And It's not only, um, you know, exploration of the universe and, and very philosophical, but it's exploration of the human psyche and how we react to to different things, to different people, to different situations, it, it's almost, I mean, I feel like the bulk of the movie is about that. And then, and this is almost like a consequence that, that and anyway, and now after we've explored all this in detail, it's over, boom, forever, <laughs> <laughs> you're not coming back. Yeah, I find it really fascinating on so many different levels.
1: Mm. Yes. Conrad, I actually, I did find a lot of similarities between this movie and The Haunting as well, Mm -hmm. um, which also centers on a female character dealing with her inner demons Mm. and in the end sort of embracing it and um, giving into her her darkness, I Mm -hmm. guess. And also in that film, a lot of the male characters are quite domineering. So... Mm interesting (laughs) domineering but ineffectually so
0: yes exactly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah
2: which is sort of the way this one was as well you know Uh, ultimately the weakest character is the strongest character
0: indeed yes fascinating Mm,
2: it is it is yes (laughs) we should do this again like uh, we'll all watch it four or five more times and we we could have another three-hour conversation about it and it'll all be different (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) Okay, a year from now, it's a date.
2: (laughs) Okay, let's do it. I
0: love
2: it. Yeah, we can have like a yearly melancholia revisit. (laughs) I'm into it.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. So. Set it free. Let's set it free.
2: Set it free to the universe. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So, Catherine, you've been an amazing guest. I'm sure everyone out there has had as much fun listening to you talking about this movie as we have talking about it with you. And I'm sure they'll be thrilled to hear about what's coming up next for you. What's on the horizon for Catherine Mary Stewart?
2: Well, uh, I'm still acting. Um, I'm doing some voiceover work. Most recently, I've been um, writing. I'm working on a movie to direct right now Mm. um, that I'm very excited about. Uh, I recently directed a short film that I also wrote. I want to get into directing more, of course. I'm an actress. Mm. (laughs) What do you want to do with your your career? I want to direct.
1: That's what they all say, (laughs)
2: apparently. But I really do. So I uh, did write a full script a while ago, which I need to get back to at some point. And since then, I've been working on another pilot script with a friend of mine that i am very excited about it's very uh contemporary and meaningful in this time Mm. and also uh writing a movie uh with a partner about sort of a a mother daughter relationship Mm. so i'm excited for uh the future like in the next year or so i'm also trying to uh direct a play, get a play going here in New York. I'm living in New York. So that's also a new challenge for me. Yeah. Mm. So I'm busy.
1: (laughs) That's a lot of projects.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of projects. Wow. (laughs) I just hope the planet doesn't slam in before I can direct my first play.
0: Oh, well, at least we'll all be well-prepared, are <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I'll be pissed off, frankly. I'll be like, oh, come on. <laughs> yes, yeah, so.
0: Not before the last Starfighter sequel comes out.
2: I know. Uh, where I can play the... Second last starfighter's mom. Yes.
0: <laughs> and hopefully, have a repeat of that wonderful moment where you turn to the camera with the wind blowing through your hair and say, Yes. I love you, Alex Rogan.
2: <laughs> I could say, I love you, Alex Rogan Jr. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: So, if people would like to follow your exploits online, how would they do that?
2: They would go to Facebook. I'm mostly on Facebook uh, at Catherine Mary Stewart. I'm also on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, and that, those are, I guess, the three.
0: Great. And if you'd like to follow us, we are Movie Oubliette on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're not sure how to spell
1: Oubliette, it is... O-U-B-L-I-E-T-G-B. Sorry, I couldn't hear that over the impending apocalypse. What was that?
2: O-U-B-L-I-E-T-E
1: And don't forget to rate and
0: review us on iTunes or whichever podcast platform you're using to consume our thoughts on forgotten movies because Mm. we would love to hear from you.
1: Yeah, I mean, how else can people know how amazing we are? (laughs) Indeed, yeah. They're clueless. (laughs) Help them out. (laughs) And let us know if you agree with our thoughts on Melancholia Or any suggestions you have for future films that we should cover in our next episodes Indeed, yes But hang on, what are we doing next episode? Yeah,
0: good question It's going to be an interesting one because it's actually the newest film that we've ever looked at But it's Ooh. still obscure It is... Space Station 76.
1: What? I've never heard of that movie. Tell me more. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
0: 2014 science fiction dark comedy drama directed by Jack Plotnick. It was based on a play and it's got an incredible cast. It's got Patrick Wilson, Liv Tyler, Matt Bomer, and Jerry O'Connell. Yeah pretty impressive lineup
1: and i still haven't heard of this movie it must be really bad
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no.
1: yeah
0: it's got a very limited release and it's available on vod but this this one was chosen by our special guest
1: oh another
0: special guest i'm sure they won't be as good as Catherine.
1: no no
0: she's definitely our best <laughs> <laughs> she's definitely our best <laughs> Okay, so yes, that that should be be fun. Mm, Looking forward to it. So all that's left for me to say is thanks to everyone for listening and a special thanks to Catherine Mary Stewart for being our guest today. You've been amazing.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Such a pleasure.
2: (laughs) I had the best time. We talked about the darkest movie on the planet Earth and it was so much fun.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's always great to talk about depression. (laughs) Indeed.
2: (laughs) Makes you feel so much better. It does. <laughs>
0: so thanks again and catch us next time. Bye.
2: Bye
0: for now. Bye.
1: For fuck's sake, if people want to linger in the bath, stay at home.